welcome back to a very special birthday bash banter. I am Max Frost, host of the American Enterprise Institute's official policy podcast, joined as always by the now 25-year-old Matt Winesett. Life is just slipping away from me as I speak. Isn't that how it feels? It feels awful. Well, no place you'd rather be celebrating your birthday than at AEI and with you, our beloved listeners. Mm. Matt, tell us about who we have on the show today. Today, we've got Jeff Kossif. He's an assistant professor of cybersecurity law in the U.S. Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department. He just wrote, he recently wrote a book called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. And he's here today for an event at AEI on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which, according to some people, is responsible for all our current woes on the internet. More realistically, according to him, this is the section of the Communications Decency Act that gave us the internet as we know it. So we wanted to talk to him today about the origins of this legislation, what it means today, why people want to change it, what's going on with alleged social media censorship, bias, big tech, all those buzzwords that you hear about now all the time in the data news. analytics, data <laughs> analytics, blockchain. No, we had no blockchain talk, but there's a lot of stuff in the news lately about Republicans and Democrats wanting to regulate social media companies, wanting to break up big tech, all of the above. We thought it was a great conversation. I'm sure you will as well. Without further ado, here is Jeff Kossif. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So as we say in the intro, you are at AEI today for an event on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and you wrote a book on the subject as well. But for us and our audience, let's just start with a 30,000-foot view. What is the Communication Decency Act? How broad is it? When was it passed? And why was it passed? So the law that I wrote about is Section 230 of the Communications Decency right. Act, which is a law that said the relevant language is that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So those are the 26 words that I say created the internet, because what they basically say is that with some exceptions, if you're an online platform like an app, a social media site, you can't be held legally responsible for the content that your users post. So that is how Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Wikipedia, Yelp, that is how they've been able to develop under their current business models because they haven't had to fear the liability of every single thing that are, that's posted by their users. Um, it was passed in 1996. It was basically just added on to a much larger overhaul of the telecommunications regulations. And the idea behind Section 230 was twofold. First, they wanted to encourage innovation and growth of a really nascent sector, the internet. Uh, and they also wanted to encourage the platforms to develop moderation practices as they saw fit. Because under the common law and the First Amendment, there was this weird rule that basically said you could actually face increased liability if you moderated the content. Uh, and that didn't make any sense to Congress. They wanted the platforms to feel free to experiment with their own policies and moderation practices. So it seems like this has been one of the most successful I mean, in terms of generating tremendous amounts of innovation, really revolutionizing the whole web sphere. It seems it's been incredibly successful. On the other hand, though, whenever we hear about these issues now, it's these people uploading videos of shootings or beheadings or whatever. So is that kind of the main debate here, innovation versus bad content? Yeah, I think so. So there's innovation and free speech, and then that can carry – the free speech has both uh, benefits and costs. And I think we need to look at both of them. So uh, you have 
Wikipedia, for example, which I think overall has been a tremendous benefit uh, by allowing sort of this crowdsourcing and sharing of information and knowledge. Uh, Yelp, I would say, is also overall a good thing because it it empowers consumers uh, so they don't have to rely on getting their story picked up by the local TV news consumer reporter. They can just go out and tell their own story. Uh, but there are also people who are defamed online. They have stories written about them that become the first search result on Google, and that can prevent them from getting jobs. It could really ruin so many aspects of their lives. So um, Section 230 has really been a megaphone for speech online because it has enabled the growth of all of these services that rely on user content. And so there have been costs and benefits to it. So without Section 230, would we would these platforms that that you know thrive off user generated content be able to even exist like would we have a facebook and a twitter and even maybe an amazon if you couldn't if these platforms had to monitor the millions of things that get uploaded to their platforms every day so i don't think they would exist in their current forms uh, because they would face too much risk uh, we don't know quite for sure exactly what the internet would look like without section 230 because we've always had section 230 for the modern internet but I think it would be a much more curated experience or there would not, frankly, just not be as many opportunities for user content. Instead, you would see platforms looking much more like a one-way communications outlet, like a newspaper or TV station. Do we have a natural experiment where we have 230 in this country, but then other countries don't and we can compare? Or do other countries also just benefit from us having Section 230 here? Well, so we, we have the strongest protections for online intermediaries in the world in Section 230. Uh, other countries have more limited protections. Often it's essentially a notice and takedown system where uh, the platform becomes responsible for any defamatory or other illegal content after receiving notice and failing to take it down. Uh, the, what we've seen, though, is many of the most successful online platforms are based in the United States. And... I don't think that it's a coincidence that uh, we all we have Section 230 and we also have some of these really successful platforms. So even if this protects the web companies from what people put up there, I mean, people are still responsible for what they post themselves, though, right? So it's like you can't go yell fire in a movie theater. Just like I can't Oof, go free on. Sp free speech lawyers hate when people say that because you kind of, I mean, you can't falsely yell it. You can yell at something. Okay, falsely, sure. So, but I you mean, you can go too far with this argument, though. That you you can't defame someone. Let's yeah. just say, that, yeah, yeah. So, and in which in which case, even if Facebook, if, if I go on Facebook and I post some thing, some threat, violent, whatever, Facebook's not liable for it. However, I myself still am. Yes, but and the big yes, but is that sometimes it is difficult to track down the person who's posting the harmful content. So we have a few different reasons for that. One is that we have anonymity technologies like Tor, which allow people to effectively mask uh, their IP address. We also have people who, I don't know why, but in this day and age, don't secure their Wi-Fi connection. So someone can tap into someone else's Wi-Fi connection, or they could be at a library or a coffee shop, uh, and they won't be identified. And third, uh, we actually have some cases in which courts have said the First Amendment provides a right to anonymity, and it prevents uh, the compelled disclosure of identifying information of people who posted. So there are a lot of different barriers that in some cases, at least, make it impossible for someone who has been harmed to identify the person who posted 
on the platform. So then their only recourse left is to go after the platform itself. Would there be a way for Congress or regulators to attack the problem of anonymity? And I can never say that word. Anonymous people without <laughs> uh, without impinging upon Section 230? Because and it seems like nobody – when you're in a car, if your license plate had your last name on it, you would never like you know have a rotor age and be a – be a jerk on the road. It seems like the same thing applies on the internet where a lot of this really horrible behavior is a result, a direct result of being able to be anonymous. Well, uh, Danielle Citron, who's on the panel with me at AEI today, um, she has had proposals for uh, traceable anonymity, some sort of requirements along those lines uh, to say, okay, I mean, there, there are some platforms that just don't log IP addresses for the very reason that they don't want their users to be able to be identified and sued. Uh, so they, you can address that to some extent, but the problem is you're still going to have people using someone else's Wi-Fi connection, or you, and you also still have the First Amendment, which Congress can't yeah. do away with, and that provides a limited right to anonymity. Hmm. So as it stands right now, everything is really internally monitored by the companies, right? So whatever I post on Facebook, Facebook has to decide, is that, is that allowed? Does that violate our code of conduct or whatever? Is that how it occurs? Or they don't have to decide, right? Isn't that kind of the point? Well, yeah. I mean, Section 230 says that they do or don't have to – that they, they could do what they want. So, yeah. Um, so, so, so rather, it's up to Facebook to decide if they're going to act on it. Yes, exactly. But all the big tech companies pretty much have policies in place to deal with this kind of stuff? Or is this just a brand new thing after all the kind of media hysteria in the last couple of years? No, the large platforms have long had policies. Uh, they've not been very transparent about them, but they've long had policies and moderation procedures. Uh, the problem is they're dealing with just a massive scale of user content. So um, they're making these decisions on just such a flood of content. They have... The largest platforms have thousands of moderators who uh, do nothing but review content that's been flagged for various reasons and make this determination. And these determinations are really hard in many cases. So um, for a hate speech policy, what would constitute hate speech under this policy for the platform? That's a difficult call. And you're having these people who, I mean, just imagine it. You are a moderator making probably about $30,000 a year for a big social media company. And your entire job is sitting sitting in front of a screen and being exposed to the most vile, horrific content all day. Uh, it's not a good job um, and it, because you're, you're really being exposed to the worst of humanity and you're having to make all of these decisions that affect people's speech. Uh, so moderation, one thing that often gets overlooked is that moderation is really, really hard. Don't you know somebody that has... I knew, I, I, yeah, I mean, they were at a, at a higher level um, than that, but for a big tech company, um, didn't work out well. <laughs> for them or for their company? or Well, for, for them. I mean, they hated the job. It was horrible. But at the same time, I, that kind of made me realize, like, you know, to have this is somebody's political views I strongly disagreed with. And it fright on the one hand, it almost frightened me to think that this person has the ability to decide what is and what is not allowed on, you know, some huge tech platform. Yeah. I mean, so we're at AEI. We're at a, you know, libertarian conservative leaning place. We obviously think Section 230 has done a great job and government regulation is usually can call has a lot of negative unintended consequences. But at the same time, at some point, could we reach a point where just if empirically 95 or some huge percent of people are getting all their information from the, all their searches going through Google or they're getting a lot of their news from Facebook and tech companies. And then the choice just de facto becomes who moderates it, either 
random people in a black room, black box at Facebook or Google, or the government through democratic debate can set some guidelines. Wouldn't that be when the government – I mean, I think this is the point of, that Senator Josh Hawley is trying to make, that this might be a decision better left in democratic hands than in the private big tech companies. So I, I think the issue with having the government moderate speech is that then you start to run into the First Amendment. So the First Amendment does not restrict the actions of a private company. Uh, there's something called the state action doctrine, which applies the constitutional rights to the public actors. So in the Fourth Amendment context, the police can't just go into your house without a warrant. But in private individual acting independently, they, they'd be trespassing, but they wouldn't be violating your Fourth Amendment rights if they went into your house. Uh, same with the First Amendment. So um, that, that, that there's just a really large constitutional issue with having the government set moderation standards. Yeah. But could we get to a point? I, I think – I mean it's, it's kind of ironic that you hear this more from the conservative side nowadays, but you could – I think Tucker Carlson, for example, has proposed trying to regulate Google like a public utility because – at some point, would it become an issue just for democracy where if all the information is coming through one channel, some type of regulation, like we would have, we would have to massage their constitutional issues, but it could become a necessity or is that, but then the standard more libertarian response, I guess, would be some competitors would prop up, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think a lot of what I'm hearing is uh, antitrust concerns, mm -hmm. uh, just that these companies have gotten very large. And that's that's a legitimate concern. That's just very different from Section 230 and moderation rules. At one point, there has to be a line that's drawn, right? I mean, I can't go set up <laughs> – I got to be careful what I say. I can't go <laughs> set up like ISISrecruits.com and just ha – you know, and recruit people to ISIS, right? Like there's some level where the internet is regulated or is it completely the Wild West? It really depends on what you're trying to do. So, I mean, one thing that's important to note is there are some exceptions to Section 230, and one of which is federal criminal law. So, uh, Section 230 never has protected against violations of federal criminal law. So, there there are laws on child pornography, for example, that say a platform or any online service that obtains actual knowledge of an apparent violation of federal child pornography laws has a duty to re report to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which works with law enforcement. Section 230 plays no role in that because that's in the federal criminal code. Also, Section 230 only protects against claims based on content that third parties have created and developed. Uh, if you start getting into a situation where the platform itself is developing in whole or in part that content, then the platform is not going to be able to claim Section 230 okay. protection. Now, the, wouldn't that give a tremendous – I mean, maybe this is a thing. Does it put it, like newspapers and traditional media outlets at a huge disadvantage? Because if they're saying everything we put out here can be regulated, whereas if we set up a third-party media website or a media website and let third-party people post on it, it's not regulated? Yeah. So, I mean, newspapers actually – uh, to the extent that they have websites that allow you user comments, newspapers can benefit from claims based on the comments that users post on their website. Uh, they obviously aren't protected based on letters to the editor that they publish in their newspaper. Uh, but interestingly, uh, you've seen some mainstream news organizations express concern about the fact that that you're raising that these online services that they view having taken a good amount of their advertising market also get this protection 
in the online world that the newspapers do not receive in the physical realm. And that that's actually become a really interesting debate that's been going on because they're saying why are, why that puts us at an even greater competitive disadvantage than we already are at. Yeah. We always talk about not wanting to pick winners and pick losers in the economy. But was Section 230 in a way, did that kind of pick a winner? I mean, we've seen local journalism just decline everywhere across the country. Is that do you think a result possibly of Section 230 or is that just inevitable with the internet age that that so, would happen? So I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that more, and I used to be a newspaper journalist, so I, I think more of that has to do with the migration of advertise, advertisements to online and the loss of what was effectively a monopoly status for advertising that newspapers had that went away with the internet. So I, I, I probably wouldn't attribute that to Section 230. The ones that have been the news a ton lately after the shootings are 8chan, 8chan Yeah, and the web hosting sites have pulled at them, that type of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, in your legal opinion, what can I mean, what can be done here to stop? Because I know like the, I think, was it the guy in charge of 8chan, the creator said, look, they're there's nothing I can do about it. This is like why it exists. So, so what can um what what realistically can we do in the short term to deal with places where people are uploading these horrific videos and manifestos to mass shootings and all this kind of stuff? Well, well, we actually saw Cloudflare basically stop providing services, and that's a company that provides cybersecurity and hosting services deeper in the technological stack. But uh, they they stopped providing services to to these sites or some of these sites at least because. Uh, because of the content that was on it. And Section 230 allows them to do that because Section 230 says that you can or can't take these actions. You you can make your choice. And the Cloudflare made their choice. And that's something that the system under Section 230 allows. So I think having greater accountability for companies is key. There's still a lot of progressives and conservatives, I think, that just do not think Section 230 works well anymore because you have things like YouTube, where it feels like in 2014, the big freak out was ISIS was uploading their videos to YouTube and spread and like radicalizing people to become Islamic terrorists. Now there's equal concern that YouTube algorithms are radicalizing disaffected white males to become white nationalists. Mm. Is this, I mean, is this the type of thing that Congress can address without just gutting Section 230 altogether? With it? I mean, I think Hawley has said that the government should essentially audit these companies and say, hand over your algorithms, hand over how you make these decisions. Because the problem now is that you watch one YouTube video, <laughs> maybe you watch banter, and then the next video is like a Milton Friedman video. Then the next one is Dave Rubin. Then the next one is Jordan Peterson. And then you just go farther and farther down a hole, and then eventually you get this white nationalist stuff. And before, <laughs> I don't think I like that. I don't think I like that uh, I don't, I mean, path you're drawing. Yeah, I mean, no, but this there's a New York Times story about this where someone said like how a Milton Friedman video led down to a white nationalist thing. And it was all because YouTube kept auto-recommending things. And then also because YouTube allowed these kind of white terrorist stuff to exist in the first place. Is this a problem that can be addressed without gutting 230? Yeah. So I, I should, giving the caveat that I'm only speaking on my own behalf and not the DOD or the Navy or Naval Academy. Caveat uh, applies to us. Uh, <laughs> We're not speaking for AI. So um, I, I think what what you're seeing are, t you, you mentioned the conservatives and liberals sort of agreeing that Section 230 doesn't work. And I think when you drill down on what their criticisms are, they're two almost polar opposite criticisms. So you have many conservatives saying that there is far too much moderation and it's politically biased and that it's biased against conservative views and uh, they're blocking certain types of speech. Then you have more liberals saying that there's hate speech and other types of speech that should be moderated much more. 
mm-hmm. and there's not enough moderation. Yeah. And so I don't know how you reconcile those two viewpoints because you you have some I, – I, I was on a podcast with someone who said there shouldn't be any moderation at all. And I, I wouldn't really want to be on the internet <laughs> if that were the case with no moderation. But um, I, I think that we haven't really defined what the problem is yet. And I think we need to do that before figuring out how to solve it. Well – to take the real free market position on this, though, I mean, isn't there already a level where you have the market forcing companies to take or forcing websites to take a bigger stand against this? I mean, if you look at like I mean, Facebook, I mean, how didn't Facebook, I think it was Facebook, didn't their advertising revenue plunge for a little bit after everyone, so people started raising all these concerns about, I guess, probably the Russia hacking stuff and Cambridge Analytica and all this. But I feel like there's definitely a place here where people will naturally kind of compel these companies to act in the public interest? Or is that not what we're seeing? So that's the theory behind Section 230 is this idea of user empowerment, that by um, letting the platforms decide what the rules of the road are, that the they'll respond to user demand. And I think the criticism of that might be that that might have worked well in 1996 when there were 40 million people worldwide on the internet. But when you now have a single platform with billions of users, they might have such a large market share that it's hard to exert pressure on them. So I, I I don't know of any empirical evidence either way, but I think that would at least theoretically be a reason why you might not be able to just rely on market pressures here. Then another concern is, this is also maybe outside the scope of Section 230, but another more conservative criticism of these platforms is that YouTube can demonetize videos where they might not take them off YouTube, but they won't let you make money off certain videos, but they will let you make money off other videos. Is that an issue of censorship, do you think, or is that overblown? Well, it, it's, I mean, depending on how you want to define censorship, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's clearly something that's going to influence someone's ability to speak. It's not a First Amendment violation because it's YouTube, but it, but it clearly, I mean, when they're making these decisions, I think we have to be realistic that that does really impact people's speech abilities, especially when you have so few very large platforms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of possible problems, but I mean, would you, my impression of this is that Section 230, at least for the time being, until we define what we actually want, is the the best best non, non-worst alternative or whatever the phrase is. Or is it even better than that? Well, I, I think the reality is we have an entire internet that's built on Section 230. So there, and I mean, I'm, I'm always open to looking at what changes might be proposed, but they have to be really deliberate and very, uh, very carefully crafted. And the first step in that is understanding what problem we're trying to address. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's necessarily even the best solution, but it's the only thing we have right now until we figure out what we want to do. All right. That seems like a good place to end it. Jeff, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So Jeff has just left the studio, and now it's just us two, and we can now talk about him. We can finally say what we honestly think. No. I thought that, I mean, well, you know, as always, please like us, leave a review, et cetera, et cetera. But he literally just left, so we want to talk about this now. I think that was a great conversation. I like, I mean, I think about this stuff a lot. It does seem like there's a lot of complaints about the internet and about how things are going, but First Amendment aside, I just don't know if there's a better alternative than what we have right now with Section 230. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there is. And it's one of these things where everybody just says like 
uh, you know, they point out these things like the shootings that are uploaded to the internet yeah. and all that. There's two things about it. For one thing, people only, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. People only talk about the bad things that they see. And that was true in the 70s before the internet with the news. Yeah. It's been the news slogan for forever. And and more importantly, I mean, to me, the idea that you could regulate away the worst abuses, uh, it's, it's the same thing as a freedom of speech debate. It's like, what, because, you know, just with anything, the idea that you can just regulate it away. And, you know, kind of like human nature, you're going to have some despicable people and they're going to do despicable things. You know, you can just regulate it away. It just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, there, there, I, I am interested, though, and like this is probably outside the scope of CDA, but there does seem to be ways you could probably make. I like I mean, we talk about this all the time. I wish tech was less ubiquitous in our lives. Like, I mean, it is an addicting thing that my it, phone is buzzing here with different social media apps as we talk. I know. I know. I mean, as Max said, I get these Facebook well wishes from on my birthday from people that I have not seen in eight years now. So you got to get rid of it. Find out who your true friends are. Are you oh. off Facebook? No. I thought you were off Facebook. You're, I'm off, off. Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, you're, uh, you're off. Yeah. How do you, how does it feel? It feels good, except on my birthday when before I would have got like literally like 150 happy birthday texts. <laughs> and now I get, now I get like four. Yeah, I find out who your friends are. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't think you made the cut. <laughs> <laughs> what no you did uh yeah no but i mean there are ways like i mean i imagine there'd be ways to have age limits on different social media apps you could i think josh hawley's bill would ban the infinite scroll where i mean i do hate when youtube does this you finish a video and then before you can even react it plays another video well why would you ban that it's like i mean like on spotify that's my favorite thing about it is as soon as i finish a song it will start playing similar stuff. Well, I want that on Spotify. I guess, I mean, maybe I'm just late. There's probably a way in YouTube to turn off the autoplay. Yeah, there is. Okay. Well, then that's my bad. I mean, <laughs> I just don't know where, I mean, this stuff is all, nobody has to be on Facebook. Nobody has to be on Twitter. Google, to me, the only, the only one that is really, that really merits a debate about like intense regulation, maybe Google, because you, ha I mean, you have to have a relationship with Google. I mean, whether it's our, uh, school all of our email addresses were gmail accounts mm -hmm. just like that they've got your information i mean i just don't know how you, how, how you can get around it i know some i know people who use there's like a new web browser it's supposed to be like the anti-chrome thing where it doesn't track any of your information yeah i mean there are sites like yahoo and DuckDuckGo and ask DuckDuckGo, i think is the one I'm, is that the one i'm thinking yeah that's like google yourself. but they don't track anything yeah yeah i mean that's the only thing that i could that there'd be a debate around too I mean, like conceivably, I'd imagine we could reach a point where what if if all of the search flows through Google and then Google, I mean, I, Yelp has complained it before where Google has scraped stuff from Yelp and then put it. So now, like when I type in on Google, like fiveguys.com, I'll see reviews on Google of five guys that might be allegedly were scraped from Yelp. So now instead of going to Yelp's browser and like giving them my traffic, I don't even have to do it because Google does it for me. On one hand, that's incredibly convenient for me because now I don't have to click through all this other stuff. I just have it right there. You type something in, Google tells me the address, the hours, the reviews, where to find it, all of that. I don't even use Yelp anymore because of that. Yeah, but on the other hand, I mean, some people are saying they're taking from Yelp's business and Google is squashing other competitors because of this. And like, so that, I think that's where the antitrust stuff comes in. Yeah, but it's just, I mean, the fact is Google has done so much to absolutely make... Oh, I love Google. Don't get I mean, me they facilitated such a tremendous amount of business and productivity that could never have been done otherwise. I know. They also fund so many like – I mean, I think this is the Peter Thiel argument that you kind of need these massive companies that have all this cash to sit on because no one else will fund the kind of crazy moonshot ideas that eventually – they might not work out. But if they do, they're a huge benefit to humanity. Yeah. And I think this is the Schumpeter argument too that you need like – for a little bit, you need monopolies because only monopolies have, the, have enough like staying power and cash reserves on hand to fund 
the craziest seeming ideas. Everybody else would not would find it way too risky to do it. Yeah, no, the, I mean, this, the, the whole tech debate is super interesting. In terms of making it like less ubiquitous in our lives, I think that's just a function of personal personal decisions. We don't even have to pay for data on our phones. It's like if worse comes to worse, you just have Wi-Fi. You, everywhere you go, you still have access to Wi-Fi, you know? Like there's no reason that I have to be getting Facebook messages or whatever, you know, tweets when I'm walking down the street and I pay. I mean, no one thinks about that, but it's like we all pay for our phone service. Mm-hmm. To have like the unlimited data or whatever, when the fact is there's Wi-Fi everywhere. So essentially, when you're doing that, you're just saying I, you don't want to go through the inconvenience of having to log into the Wi-Fi when you get to your office. I mean, there's Wi-Fi in cities, but like if you live out in the suburbs, and you'd, you'd have to drive to Starbucks to get a Wi-Fi. You know? Yeah, like, but well, I guess yeah. But I mean, I mean for us, but like the main thing, like I would be, I would be losing is the time I'm walking between my office and my classes and my apartment, which comes out to like an hour a day that I wouldn't have internet. What if you get a very important work-related email in that hour? It can wait. <laughs> Sorry to my five bosses, but it can wait. Now, the bigger issue, I wanted to talk to him about this too. The bigger issue is the, we kind of ran into this with a Facebook Russian meddling thing, the democracy issue, I think, where now yeah. deep fakes are becoming such a, we now have the technology to make videos that are so realistic, nobody can tell the difference between one or the other. I mean, I also feel like we could get to a point where if these type of, if people are making these political videos that are then uploaded to Facebook or wherever, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal would never upload a deep fake video that says, and here's what candidate Bernie Sanders said today, because the Times has standards, they would check it, fact check it, that type of thing. <laughs> I'm getting a quizzical look. Yes, the New York Times has standards. <laughs> I like the Times. The uh, Facebook, though, I mean, they, you could upload those videos and there might be not be any punishment. There could be no stopping them. And during the 2016 election, I kind of rolled my eyes because most of the stuff that was passed off as fake news you know, farmed from some like content digital mill in Macedonia or somewhere was stuff like Hillary Clinton proposes to outlaw Christianity in America. It's like, okay, obviously that's fake. And the only people that are going to believe that would have voted against Hillary anyway. So I don't think that swung anything. Deep fakes could be a totally different game changer. It's possible. We'll see. I, I don't think the technology is quite there yet, though. I mean, the ones I've watched are still kind of evident that it's something is fi- something fishy is going on. A little bit weird, but not like if you're just why if you're just scrolling and see it on Twitter, you might not question it. That's true. Maybe that's I, the problem. With well, you know, this kind of, I think this comes down to so much, so many different things, though, whether it's like health issues and like cigarettes, like we talk about. And, and you know, so many different things where it comes down to a question of just educate education and how, how do you have people who can look at the Internet analytically, you know, critically rather than just assume it's all fact, which is I don't know how you do. It. I mean, it's a huge thing. And it, whether it's going to come down to government regulation or through something else, getting people to kind of step up to the plate. I'm not too sure, but it's def- I think it's going to become a defining issue. I can't even imagine in the next election or, you know, five years from now, just the technology is going to be in such a place where it's going to completely make every, it's going to be a completely different ballpark than what we're in now. I know. We should talk, we should get, uh, we should really get someone to talk about the disinformation stuff on banter. I know. Well, stay tuned for an episode on that because I mean, it's, it, it's honestly frightening. I, I, I read articles every now and then about how bad 2020 is going to be just in the disinformation sphere. I mean, let alone like the. I mean, it gets more the partisan vitriol. Vitriol gets more vitriolic every year, it seems like. <laughs> There's a great Krauthammer piece from like 92, I think, where he says the reason everybody hates politicians is because every campaign season, all the advertisements say, well, my opponent is a liar. Oh, yeah, well, my opponent is a cheat. Oh, yeah, my, my opponent wants to ruin America. If every politician you hear about, all you hear is negative ads about them, no wonder nobody likes their politician. And that was written in the 90s. It's been so much worse since then. And 2020 will probably be worse. Yeah. 
So unfortunately. Well, on that note, we will leave you off here. Matt, you got a lot to think about for your 25th year. Congratulations on making it this far. Hmm. And a hearty happy birthday from all of your banter family at AEI. <laughs> Thank you.